I think, hey, Bill, good to see you. I think we'll uh, get started. I got a lot of ground to cover with all of you here this morning. I'd like to get through uh, all of the slides if I could, so we'll see if we can do it, just because it'll kind of tie up in a big bow if we can get through it. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you honor, praise, and glory. Uh, We thank you for being a God who's revealed himself to us. We pray, Lord, as we look at your word today, both here in Revelation and also in 1 John, that you would give us good minds and that we would think well upon your texts, that we may be better conformed to the image of your Son. We pray, Lord, that you'd drive home the great promises that you have for your people, for us who are called out through faith in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, remember last time we had left off talking about the imminent coming of Christ, and that's because we're in Revelation chapter 14, where we saw an angel, even in the final years of the tribulation period is going to be preaching the gospel and he explains in revelation 14 7 that the reason the gospel must be believed and people must repent is because the hour of judgment has come does everyone remember that that's where we left off well that phrase the judgment has come shows us that indeed you and I are living in the time where it's coming. So a good reader of Scripture will take note of all of the passages throughout the New Testament that talks about this hour of judgment that is at hand, that it's coming. In fact, John himself, remember I showed you, uses this idea of the hour coming. Jesus said in John 5, 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. Now stop there. Why does he say is coming and now is? Because at Jesus' first advent, people hear his voice and they live spiritually. But in the second advent, they will hear his voice and they'll have a resurrection that lasts forever. So he's kind of blending it there. But notice, let me just skip ahead to verse 28. Here, he focuses purely on the future. He says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So in Revelation, the hour isn't coming, the hour is. Okay, and why? Because that's the 70th week of Daniel. Remember the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, is synonymous with the day of the Lord, the hour of judgment. It's synonymous with the parousia, the coming of Christ. All of those phrases are synonymous. Okay, now I also showed you in other Gospels, like in Matthew where John the Baptist said, here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We talked about the nature of the kingdom. It is a great blessing for the people of God that you and I are going to be partakers of the kingdom through faith in Christ. But it is also an ominous threat for the unregenerate. We see the same thing in Matthew 4, 17, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, here's where I want to go. I want to show you that not just the gospels, it's not just the gospel writers who proclaim the imminence of Christ, a return and coming, but we also see it in the epistles. And so I want to begin by having you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verse 11. You know, it's funny, as I'm pulling this up, I just realized I have the wrong version up. I've got the version with no notes in it, so I'm going to have to pull out my Bible too. And the problem with my Bible is notice all the paperwork that I've got in it. I use it as a folder as well. <laughs> Someday I'll break down and buy a folder. But please turn your Bibles to Romans 13, 11.
Romans 13, 11. Now, this is right after Paul has admonished the congregation at Rome to love. And then he says, why? Besides this, he says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer. Notice the adverb, ingus. It's nearer to us now than when we first believed. So that's verse 11. Notice the adverb, verse 11. It's nearer. Well, how near? Well, you don't know. Because it's an unknown date, but it's assured to come. That's what necessitates imminence. Imminence requires two things. The certainty of the event to occur without the date of when it will occur. That's why it's an imminent prospect that Jesus is going to return in judgment. It's a certainty, but you don't know when. He says no one knows the day or the hour. Notice here in Romans 13, 12, Paul continues. He says the night is almost gone and the day is near. Ingus again. How near? You don't know. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. When he says the day of near, of course, the image should be the day of the Lord. But also notice the contrast between the night and the day. The night is the old age, the old world, the old things. But the daylight is the messianic kingdom. And he's talking about it's near. How near? You don't know. Now, some have objected to this doctrine of imminence because they will claim, for example, I believe it's in John 5. I don't have my notes now. I put up the wrong version. But in John 5, we have a a passage where John alludes to the fact that the Passover was near. So I remember debating with one fellow who was denying the doctrine of imminence, and he would say, look, Eric, the term ingus, the adverb for near, is certainly used for the Passover, and they knew that the Passover couldn't happen at any moment because there was a specific date. And I said, precisely, the difference between the coming of Christ and the Passover, you can say the Passover is near, because you know, let's say it's Tuesday, the 12th of Nisan, your Jewish calendar. You know that Passover is on the 14th day. So you know Passover is just two days away. But what date is the coming of Christ? You don't know. So do you see, you can't compare apples to oranges. Saying a known date, the 14th day of Nisan, Passover is near, well, you know how near it is. And therefore, yes, it's not imminent. Duh. Right? Right? You know how near it is, but how near is the Lord's coming? It's certain to happen, but you have no knowledge of the day or the hour. That's the distinction that we have to make. So, yes, Bob. I like this verse 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I like all the verses, but <laughs> the night is nearly over daylight and near. Let us discard the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. In, I'm working on an article called Two Realm Theology. Yeah. Okay, we saw in First John that when we come to Christ, we are transferred from darkness to light. That's also in Acts twenty six eighteen. Yeah, no. it's in Colossians one thirteen fourteen. It's in First John. It's in John. I was just working on this this last week. Yeah. Now, when we come to faith. We're taken out of the realm of darkness and we're transferred into the realm of light yeah. through the gospel. Amen. It's already done. We're not in both camps. Yeah. So once we're here, Paul is saying, 
discard the deeds that belonged over here. Right. right. In other words, now that you're new, you don't have to live like you did for the old age when you're in darkness. Right. Well said. So, it's a motivation for sanctification. It's already it's an already not yet. Exactly. We're already children of light. We're already forgiven. Right. Forgiveness of sins is always linked to the new realm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Acts twenty six eighteen. So you don't like those deeds of darkness? Good. You shouldn't. Right. Discard them. Right. Don't live for them anymore. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, well said. Now, let me show you some other passages that tie into this idea of nearness. Here's one from Philippians, Philippians 4, 4 through 5. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And again, you see the adverb angus. Now, here, some people will claim that the Lord's nearness has to do with him being imminent, not in the sense of time, but in the sense of he's omnipresent. But I would take it as a timing issue again. The issue is that the Lord is at hand. That is his return. Okay, so why should we have a gentle spirit, one that's not abusive, one that reflects the spirit of God? Well, because we want to honor God. We want to live godly lives here and now. Why? Because the coming is at hand. I'll show you another one in James, James 5, 9. James says, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Literally in the Greek, it's right at the doors, plural. And the image is of the courtroom setting where the judge just has to proceed from the doors into the courtroom. And so that really enhances the idea of imminence. Where is the judge? He's just outside the the doors. And all he has to do is come in. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament really does teach the doctrine of imminence. It is a lost doctrine, primarily because the Olivet Discourse has been distorted. When we understand the Olivet Discourse, that the signs are not now, because people say, well, how can it be imminent? You have all these signs that have to occur prior. No. Once you realize the signs are within the last seven years, you realize nothing has to transpire prior to the coming of the Lord. That's what the New Testament writers understood. And what you and I should do as the careful reader of the book of Revelation is realize that the entire book of Revelation itself is built on the doctrine of imminence. Let me remind you, we talked about this prior, but it's good to do reviews. Remember Daniel 2.28. You have this glorious vision that Nebuchadnezzar sees. Now, he's a pagan, but remember Daniel reveals to him what the message is all about from the vision and recall that there are four kingdoms that come about the babylonian the medo-persian the greek the roman but then there were going to be 10 toes of the antichrist kingdom and after that a stone the messianic kingdom would shatter it all and notice here in daniel 2:28, daniel says how this message was known daniel says however there's a god in heaven who reveals mysteries stop there who reveals mysteries God does, and he does so through his prophets. So if someone declares to you that they're revealing a mystery like Jonathan Kahn, what are they claiming to be? A prophet. (laughs) What's the problem with that? We don't have any modern-day prophets or apostles, okay? So I'll just keep going. That's a little aside. That one's free of charge. (laughs) And he goes on to say, and he was made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Notice that phrase in the red. Literally in the Greek, it's the things that must take place in the last days. What's so interesting is Revelation 1.1 takes that very phrase and builds off of it. Let me just ask all of you, 
when did the last days finally come about? Now, remember in Daniel's day, they're pushed off to the future. But according to what? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we are living in the last days. The God in many ways and many portions has spoken to our, our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. So the last days were initiated at the first advent of Christ. Hence, when John's writing Revelation, he builds right off of Daniel 2.28. And notice his call. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, that which proceeds from Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the identical phrase from Daniel 2.28 in red, the things that must take place. But notice the substitute. It's not in the latter days. It's soon. Tachos, the adverb, it's imminent. It's at hand. Why? Because we're in the last days. So that's what you have to realize. As soon as the last days were ushered in, the coming of this kingdom of Jesus Christ is an imminent promise to the people of God, but it's also an imminent threat to the enemies. That's what Revelation is built off of. Yeah. Besides mysteries being uh, revealed through prophets, what about through just history unfolding? Yeah, through providential occurrences. Uh, yeah, certainly we can know things from general revelation. We can even know things that God reveals through um, the creation, etc. In other words, we could say that for many years, how something flies was a mystery. Um, but then we discovered Bernoulli's principle, when a fluid reaches a constriction, it has an increase in velocity and a decrease in pressure. Hence, you have that over the top of the wing. Hence, well, you know, I'm just giving one example. Right. But, I mean, just one example from science, all of a sudden we learn a mystery, right? So, yeah, but you're exactly right. that We can know things from general revelation, but there are certain things that we would not know unless God had revealed them through his prophets and apostles, namely his plan of messianic salvation, how it all plays out. We certainly knew in the Old Testament the outline even of eschatology, but revelation fills in a lot of the details, doesn't it? Now, what I want to build off of, thank you, Brian, for that question. Notice the end of Revelation. What does it end on? It's interesting. It ends on the same adverb as in verse 1. Remember, in verse 1, it says soon, the things that must take place soon. What's interesting is the same adverb is actually quickly in Revelation 22.20. Here's the very end of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, yes, this is Jesus. I am coming literally soon. And I would render it as imminently. So I would render Revelation 1.1, the things that must take place imminently. And I would say in Revelation 22.20, he's coming imminently. So the whole book of Revelation is an inclusio built on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And yet, what do we have in evangelicalism is a denial of the doctrine of imminence. I think we have to recover it. Because the coming of Christ in judgment for his enemies but for salvation of his people is the motivating factor for godly living, for being about his business, and also for the encouragement of the people of God. Okay, the doctrine of imminence is taught in the scriptures. Now, with that, if anybody has any questions or comments, show ideas, concerns, yes, Steve. Back in the Romans 13, it talks about yeah. salvation is near. <clears throat> that term... We think of it as being something in the past. Is that maybe you could comment on that? Because yeah, there's, good, a, there's somewhere it talks about how your look up for your salvation is coming nigh, not necessarily something in the past, but possibly yeah, well future. Yeah, well said, Steve. Yeah, there's an already not yet 
concept in the scriptures. You and I, have, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, we have been saved. But remember, we always talk about that being positionally. Positionally, we've been seated, as it says in Ephesians 1, in the heavenly places with Christ. But have we actually experienced it? Well, no. It's our reservation has been punched for the kingdom. But are we actually experiencing the kingdom and the resurrection where we no longer sin against our God, reign with him in glory? No. So it's in that sense that Paul means our salvation is near. It's the, um, think of it this way. In the first advent of Christ and through faith in Christ, our salvation has been inaugurated. But at the second advent of Jesus Christ, it will be consummated. And so that's Paul's focus there is on the consummation, not on the inauguration of salvation. Does that help? Excellent. Very good question. Thanks for pointing it out. Yeah. Now, I want to keep moving on for the sake of time to our next PowerPoint. Believe it or not, our next one, we're just going to cover one verse, but you'll see the reason why. It's not to bog down. It's actually just to get out some ground rules of what Babylon is. Let me pull it up here. We're going to look at Revelation 14a. Now, remember in Revelation chapter 14, we are looking at background information as to what occurs in the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week and also the millennial kingdom. We saw that the 144,000 would reign with Jesus Christ. Well, here in Revelation 14.8, we see a proleptic pronouncement of Babylon's fall. Now, proleptic means it's so assured that it's going to occur, it is spoken as if it's already occurred. Sometimes it's called the prophetic preterite that is the prophets often use this type of language. Now, I want to get right into the text here. Let me begin reading. We're going to be asking the question, what is the city of Babylon the great? Notice what John goes on to say after verse 7. Revelation 14, 8, he says, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, remember last week in verses 6 through 7, we were looking at the first angel. And the first angel had made a proclamation of the gospel. Everyone was to repent. Why? Because the hour of judgment had come. All right? Now, what's very interesting is now we have a second angel. And the second angel here is making a proclamation. But this one is of judgment. And I think a fair inference is to say the reason why we have a proclamation of judgment here is because a proclamation of salvation was indeed rejected by the previous angel. Okay, so now the judgment comes. Notice what the angel says. He says, fallen, fallen, Babylon the great. Now, the term fallen, fallen is a way to accentuate the idea that Babylon will indeed be destroyed. And it is a direct allusion to Isaiah 21.9. Now, I'm going to come back to that later, to Isaiah 21.9. But for now, I want to focus on what is he referring to when he's talking about Babylon the Great. Okay, now, why do we want to deal that with that here? Because when we get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, I'd like to have this already laid out where you and I can say we know what Babylon the Great is so that we don't have to bog down in all those details when we get there. Babylon the Great, there's been much controversy over the location of this city. Many people throughout hundreds of years have propose different ideas. One idea that's been somewhat troubling to me is the idea that it's Jerusalem. 
This is really first put forward by preterists who believe that everything was fulfilled in Revelation in 70 AD. But there are good evangelical scholars who hold it today. In fact, how many ever go online and look at Bible.org? There was an article written by a very gifted scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary who claims that Babylon is Jerusalem. But as I'm going to be showing you, it's very clear that I think Babylon is not Jerusalem. Okay? So here's my whole point in this. We don't want to divide over non-essential issues. We don't divide with people because they think that Babylon is Jerusalem and we don't. But at the other, at the other, on the other hand, we also don't want to fall for the postmodern notion that we just can't know. And the reason why I want to labor that point is because nothing steals the power of revelation, I think its authority, its power, more than when people say, well, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that, who can know when you toss your hands in the air? And what I'm going to show you is I think there's good evidence that we can know what Babylon the Great is. So let me give you some choices here. Some scholars have said it's Jerusalem. Some said it's Rome. That's been a very long-held view. Some think it's just symbolic. But I'm going to be showing you that I think it's literal Babylon on the Euphrates. Okay, now as I lay out number four, I'm going to show you that that does not negate number three, that there is symbolic value to this literal city. Babylon not only will really exist, but it also symbolizes all of the rebellion against God and idolatry for all ages, just as it did in the last days. Yes, David. We'll get a mic for I'm sorry. Well, I have heard, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that possibly Nineveh might have been the site of the area of Babylon. Wrong? Incorrect? No, um, that would be more in Assyria. So um, we're we're talking about two different locations. Babylon would be right along the Euphrates. And so we'd be talking about two different areas. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, as you talk about Nineveh, Nineveh is certainly a city that stood against God. And in some sense, Babylon, think about Nebuchadnezzar, think about the Babylonians. Well, when they're taken over by the Assyrians at various places, certainly Babylon still stands as the prototypical enemy of God, even though the Assyrians are running them as a puppet. But in that sense, sometimes Babylon does represent the Assyrian kingdoms who is standing behind them, using them like a puppet. But the term Babylon is still used of them. In fact, that's a point that Adam Olin has made, and I think he's exactly right. So you're not altogether wrong. I just want to make the distinction, though, between Nineveh and Babylon. I hope that makes sense. Yep. thank you for the question. Now, one of the reasons, by the way, that people have thought that Rome has been Babylon is because of the reference in 1 Peter 5.13. And I want everyone to know that. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 5.13. I'll just deal with the Rome issue real quick, and we'll come back to it as well. 1 Peter 5.13, here Peter is writing, and I believe he's writing from Rome. And this is why many people have thought that Babylon should be seen as Rome. 1 Peter 5.13, Peter really is ending his address here. He says, she, the she, by the way, is the church. The church who is in Babylon, you could say, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and, and so does my son Mark. Mark the writer of the gospel mark okay now in context she is obviously the church and peter was writing this epistle from rome and so obviously he's talking about those who are in rome 
Now, what's interesting about that is many people have tried to take that and foist it upon the book of Revelation. But remember, anytime we read a book, whether it's Old or New Testament, we always want to start within the book itself to understand the particular author's point. Are you with me? So what I'm going to show you is certainly there was knowledge in the New Testament church and among the apostles that Rome was like a Babylon. But I'll show you in John, in John's Revelation, that it's not what John's talking about. Okay, now let's begin with the evidence. Babylon is Jerusalem. There's three strands of evidence that people usually cite to prove that Babylon is synonymous with Jerusalem. Number one, because there are many harlot references. Number two, Jerusalem and Babylon kill the prophets. Number three, both Jerusalem and Babylon are referred to as the great city in the book of Revelation. And so many think this is absolutely compelling. Aha! Babylon the great must be Jerusalem. Let's begin backwards. We'll start at number three, great city references. We know that Jerusalem is called the great city in Revelation 11.8. So you can just jot down Jerusalem, great city, Revelation 11.8. But in Revelation 18.10, Babylon is called the great city as well. And so proponents of the Jerusalem view will say, aha, clearly there's a connection. Now, if that's all you had to go on, that would be a good connection. However, what I'm going to show you later is more than likely the reason why John calls Jerusalem great and Babylon great, the reason for Babylon's greatness is because it's an allusion to Daniel 4.30. Nebuchadnezzar called Babylon the great city. Okay? And I'm also going to show you that John uses the term great 61 times. Everything's great. It's kind of like uh, our president. <laughs> Everything's great. He's the greatest. They're the greatest. He's, that's John in Revelation, and I'll, I'll talk more about that, okay? It's a little bit of hyperbole. Number two, kills the prophets. This is certainly a, a valid connection. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 18.24. Revelation 18.24. Revelation 18.24, talking about Babylon, it says, In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Now, I'm sorry to have you turn your Bible over, but let's compare that to what Jesus says of Jerusalem in Luke 13.34. Luke 13.34, if you turn your Bibles there, you see Jesus say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. So Jerusalem certainly was known as the headquarters of apostasy because the very religious leaders that should have pointed Israel to messianic salvation rejected Messiah. They've routinely rejected the prophets, whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Isaiah. Uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, uh, wept not because things went well, because things didn't so go, go so well in Jerusalem. They're the ones who killed the prophets. And so there's obviously... A similarity isn't there. Now, just because we have a similarity, though, doesn't mean that they're necessarily the same. Let me show now number one. Number one, there's harlot references. How many know that oftentimes Jerusalem was, was referred to as a harlot or the people of Israel were? We know in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, by the way, was the prophet from the northern kingdom. Remember what kind of wife was he required to, to have? A harlot. 
and it was used as an object lesson against the people of God. Just as the prophet would be a good husband to his wife and yet she was unfaithful, Yahweh was a wonderful husband, as it were, to the people of Israel, and yet they were a harlot and they went after other gods. And so routinely, Israel is likened to a harlot, and sure enough, Babylon is the great harlot in the book of Revelation. But there's a difference. Now, here's where I want to start showing you the differences. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 16. Particularly, Ezekiel 16, we'll start in verse 16. Ezekiel 16 is a passage where Israel, specifically Judah, is likened to being a harlot. And those who are proponents of the Jerusalem view will say, aha, Babylon is a harlot and Israel was a harlot. They must be the same. That is Jerusalem. But here, notice in Ezekiel 16, 16, God does rebuke his people. He says, you took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them which should never come about nor happen. So here God is rebuking them for having other gods. Israel did play indeed the role of the harlot. But what's very interesting is at the end of Ezekiel, if you keep reading, there's going to be restoration and forgiveness for Israel and Jerusalem. But in the book of Revelation, is there any forgiveness or restoration of Babylon? No. It's thrown down. In fact, it will never be found anymore. Fast forward, look ahead in Ezekiel 16, 60 through 63. I know there's a lot of verses there. We'll just read these four. Verses 60 through 63. Notice here in Ezekiel 16, 60 through 63, God says this through the prophet. He says, nevertheless, even though they had sinned, he says, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Well, that's the new covenant made possible by the Messiah. Verse 61, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. So here's repentance. When you receive your sisters, both your old and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am Yahweh so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. Brothers and sisters, there's going to be forgiveness and restoration of Israel, but there never is of Babylon. Think about this. Here's the, the passage I wanted to show you, Revelation 17:5. Notice Babylon the Great is called what? The mother of harlots. So the idea is Babylon's called a harlot. Israel's called a harlot. They must be one and the same. Not so fast. Jerusalem's going to be restored. Babylon's going to be thrown down. Let me show you an example. Let me ask the question, could this ever be said of Jerusalem? Revelation 18.21, this is about Babylon, the strong city. It says, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Dear ones, put on your overall theological cap. Is there ever going to be a day where Jerusalem will be found no longer? No. In fact, let me show you. And this is, by the way, Zechariah 14, which supplies more information to what we know about Revelation 19 when the Lord Jesus returns to Jerusalem and fights against the enemies of God. Zechariah 14, 9 through 10, it says, 
And this is after the Lord has vanquished the enemies that surround Jerusalem. So this is what occurs in Revelation 19. We have more information here in Zechariah 14, 9 through 10. It says, And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one, and his name the only one. Verse 10, All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. So Babylon will no longer be found anymore. Jerusalem will remain on its site. And what you and I have to do is to say, aha, a city cannot not exist. Wait, that was a double negative. A city cannot exist and exist at the same time in the same relationship. Are you with me? How can Jerusalem exist forever and not exist forever at the same time in the same relationship? We'd have a contradiction. Right there should prove to us Babylon is not Jerusalem. Babylon's going to be thrown down, never to be found anymore. That's not whatever is said of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the established city of God. Now, one other thing I want to point out is that Babylon's destruction in Revelation 18.21 fulfills a prophecy that's never been fulfilled from the book of Isaiah. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19. Isaiah 13.19. Now, as you're turning there, recall when we're reading in Isaiah 13, we're talking about the future day of the Lord. This isn't just a temporary judgment or a local judgment, but it's a future judgment on the entire world. So it's not just a localized one. It's going to be a cosmic one. Notice in Isaiah 13, 19, it says, In Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now stop there. When God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, it was done. It doesn't exist anymore. Do you know today, right now in Iraq, there's 250,000 people that live in the confines and the area of Babylon where it was? But the depiction that we see in the book of Revelation is that it will cease to exist. God will do to it what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's never been fulfilled in history. What's very interesting is there's been many destructions of the city of Babylon. Let me read them through history. Sargon II a really mean-spirited Assyrian ruler, destroyed it in 710 uh, B.C. Sennacherib, how many in here have heard of Sennacherib? He was a particularly nasty bugger. Well, he destroyed Babylon twice in 702 and 689 B.C. The 689 destruction, by the way, was the worst. It really, the people were really laid desolate. However, it always still remained on its site. In fact, so much so that when Cyrus came, oh, by the way, there was another one, uh, Syrian ruler, 648, Ashurbanipal. Uh, name your child Ashurbanipal and have a kick me sign on his back forever. Right? He destroyed Babylon in 648 BC. All right? But then, of course, it fell again due to, due to the Persians, the Medo-Persians under Cyrus in 539 BC. But remember, the 539 BC wasn't that brutal of a takeover. Yes, the people were killed and there was a battle, but it was never destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah was, where it ceased to exist. Well, that's exactly what's being depicted in Revelation 18.21. So here's the point. Revelation 13.19 says that Babylon will be destroyed and will cease to exist like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Well, that's never occurred in history, and yet isn't it interesting Revelation depicts that that will occur? Well, that certainly can't be said of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will always exist. Babylon won't. And to me, that's conclusive evidence that Babylon the Great cannot be Jerusalem. Okay, now let's move on for the sake of time. And let's deal with what about the great city references? What do we do? Hey, people say Jerusalem's called the great city. Babylon's called the great city. What do you do with that? Well, first of all, realize John likes using the term great in the book of Revelation. He uses it 61 times. In fact, the term great is used in Revelation more than any other book in the Bible. Okay, let me just give you a smattering. This is just uh, kind of give you the flavor. He talks about a great earthquake, the great day of wrath, the great wind, great tribulation, great mountain that fell in the sea, great star, great furnace, great river Euphrates, great hailstorm, great sign, great red dragon, great eagles, great signs, great wine press. Why does he use great so much? Because the book of Revelation is about the greatest or worst time ever. Remember Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse, this time is like no other. Unless it be cut short, no flesh would survive. Okay, well, that certainly did not occur in church history, did it? Right, this is going to occur in the 70th week of Daniel. So that's why I think he uses great so often. He's showing that this is unparalleled. It's not just any earthquake that occurs. It's the, the greatest of all that occurs in the 70th week. It's not just the wrath of God. It's the greatest wrath of God. It's not just an angel. It's the greatest angel in anyone's seen who's proclaimed the gospel in the heavens. It's the greatest displays that mankind will ever see will occur in the 70th week. That is, I think, the reason why great is used over and over and over. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice here in Revelation 16, 19, we do see a distinction between Jerusalem, the great city in blue, and Babylon in red. Notice Revelation 16, 19, John says the great city, that's Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And notice in green, he says, and the cities of the nations fell. Then he says, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, notice in blue, how do we know that the great city here is an allusion to Jerusalem and not Babylon the great? Well, because back in Revelation 11:8, John specified that Jerusalem, if he doesn't use the term Babylon the great city, or it's not in context, the great city refers to Jerusalem. Notice what he says, Revelation 11:8, talking about the two witnesses. He says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically I like the term spiritually, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, where was the Lord crucified? Jerusalem. Okay, now let's get back though to Revelation 16, 19. The other reason we know that the great city in blue is to be distinguished from Babylon in red is notice the intervening reference in green. The cities of the nations fell. Now, the reason that phrase is significant is because the city of the nations would be the city of the Gentiles, the goyim, the, the nations. Why is that important? Because it shows us that the great city in blue must, meet, must not be a city of the nations. It must be a Jewish city, hence it's Jerusalem. So do you see the, distinguish, the distinguishing that John does between the Jewish city, the great city, Jerusalem, and all the cities of the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles? Okay, well, then he talks about Babylon the Great, which would be a subset of the, one of the nation's cities. Yeah, David. Well, um, we talked about Babylon will be destroyed, okay, but um, what I was wondering is that 
it will be temporarily, will it not be rebuilt temporarily? Um, not, not after uh, Revelation 18.21. It literally says it will be found no more. Oh. And um, so it'll be kaput, done, um, never to be rebuilt. It will, it will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll yeah. never be established again. Well, yeah. no, I had another question yeah. about the, uh, this is probably God dealing out different uh, wrath, but it won't be the same as a battle of Armageddon where the, the, the he'll just pour down fire and brimstone and uh, earthquakes and everything else, all those armies that mass against Israel. This is a different situation, right? Yeah, I, I believe you're correct. Um, remember Babylon is, in a sense, the headquarters. I'm thinking of it now not just as a city, but as a, um, is, is a conglomeration where the Antichrist and the false prophet rule and reign over it. And so, yes, it's a city. That's the headquarters. Babylon, I believe, on the Euphrates. But it also is a spiritual and economic and governmental hub of the world. And as such, it does dispense forces against Jerusalem. We see that in Revelation 16, where the nations will surround Jerusalem. This is exactly what Zechariah 14 refers to. Well, when you fast forward to Revelation 19, the Messiah comes and he defeats all of those armies who surround Jerusalem. So the battle of Har-Megiddo is really the battle against Jerusalem. So I would see that judgment is different than the, the destruction of the city of Babylon itself. So does that make sense? So the battle of Armageddon is the destruction of the enemies that surround Jerusalem, whereas the destruction of Babylon would be more in keeping with a direct smiting where God, just as he did to Sodom and Gomorrah, um, lights it up in fire, as it were, so it's found no more. So I would see them as two distinct things. I hope that makes sense. Does anybody else have any thoughts or comments on that? I hope that makes sense, David. Yeah, good question. Very good. So anyway, here's what I want you to see on this, on this uh, PowerPoint slide is simply that the great city, I think, is easily distinguished, that is Jerusalem in blue, from Babylon the Great. Now, one other thing I want to point out before we move on, isn't it interesting in Revelation 11:8 that John says the great city, he's talking about Jerusalem because the Lord is crucified there. Notice he says mystically, or I like spiritually better, spiritually it's called Sodom and Egypt. Think about it this way. If there was ever a time, if John implied that the great city Jerusalem was Babylon, wouldn't this be the time to link the great city Jerusalem to Babylon? Well, he doesn't do so. He links it to Sodom and Egypt, but he, he doesn't call it Babylon, and he could have. It's kind of like, you remember in um, Acts 1, where Peter asked, is it now, Lord, you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? If there was ever a time that the Lord could have set him straight and said, where'd you get the goofy idea that the kingdom's coming to Israel? It would have been then. And here, obviously, if in fact Jerusalem was Babylon in the book of Revelation, there was the time to, for John to make the link, saying, yes, the great city is in fact Babylon. He doesn't do so. And he had the opportunity to do so. Dear ones, clearly the great city Jerusalem is not the same thing as Babylon. Okay, now, what about the Roman references? Let's deal with that because that's actually been a more popular view over the centuries than the Jerusalem view. The view that the Babylon the Great is in fact Rome is built on three strands of evidence as well. Number one, Babylon rules over the nations. People will say, aha, when John wrote the book of Revelation, who was ruling over the nations? Rome was. And they say, aha, it must be Rome. 
Number two, Babylon persecutes the saints. When John wrote Revelation, who was persecuting the saints? Rome. Rome was. Now, let's stop here, though, for just a moment. At first glance, this seems to have a lot of merit, but let's remember what time period are we in when we're reading Revelation 4 through 22. Those who hold to the Rome idea are what we call historists. And what they do is they take Revelation chapter 4 all the way to 22 and they place it in history. So the reformers would have held to that view. They would say that those chapters are all about papal Rome that happened in church history. But let's ask ourselves the question. Let's remember, at the fourth seal in Revelation 6, how many of the earth's population do we lose? We lose a quarter of the earth's population. Did that ever occur while Rome was ruling? No. We lose at the sixth trumpet a third of all of humanity. And when you add that up with a quarter and a third, they're cumulative. You've lost over half of the earth's population. Has that ever occurred in history? No. Therefore, when will the worst time period ever occur? In the future 70th week of Daniel. So right away, we can see that the two leading ideas of why Rome should be linked to Babylon doesn't really have any merit. Yes, certainly Rome in John's day did persecute the saints, certainly did rule over the nations, but that doesn't negate the possibility of a future kingdom, the kingdom of Antichrist doing it in the future. So I don't think that has these two points that those who hold to the Rome view has any merit. Now, the third one is a little more persnickety. It's more precise to the book of Revelation. People will say, well, Babylon sits on seven hills or seven mountains, according to Revelation 17.9, and we know that Rome sits upon seven hills. And they'll say, aha, they have to be the same. It's too coincidental to not be. In fact, let me read to you the different hills in Rome, just so you know that there are, in fact, seven. I wrote these down. They all have uh, fairly weird-sounding names, but let me go through them. Number one, there's the hill of Aventine. Then there's Kalelian, then there's Capitoline, Esquiline, Palatine, Quirinal, and Viminal. I think that's seven. So there are seven hills, but what's the problem with saying that Babylon that sits on seven hills must be Rome? Well, John defines what he means by hills. So remember, every time you and I see something written in Revelation, we should take it literally, unless John gives us a clue that he's using symbolism. And in fact, in Revelation 17, he shows us that he's using the hills symbolically. Listen to what he says. Revelation 17, 9 through 10, John says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, verse 10, and they are seven kings. So right there, we know that these aren't literal hills. Why? Because you and I are so smart as interpreters, we know it's symbolic. No, because John told us they're not literal hills. I'm not making it up. John told me. Okay? So if he talks about Babylon, unless he tells me it's used symbolically, I say, I think he means Babylon. If he talks about Jerusalem, unless he says it's symbolically something, I say, I think he's talking about Jerusalem. But if he gives us a clue in the text that he's talking symbolically, certainly he does here, we take it symbolically. The seven hills are actually seven kings. They represent the kings and kingdoms that had come against the people of God. What are the seven kings? Egypt, you had Assyria, Babylon, and you had Greece, right? I think those are all of them, the five. 
Did I miss one? Persia. I'm sorry, I missed Persia. Persia's in there. So that'd be five. That's the five that are. Notice in verse 10, it says five have fallen. One is. What would be the one that is? That's Rome. And then there was one that was going to come. That was the kingdom of the Antichrist. And he'll remain for a little while. Okay, so clearly Rome is not the best fit for Babylon the Great. Yes, it sits on seven hills, but the seven hills represent seven kingdoms. So what is the evidence for the Babylon view? Again, brothers and sisters, Babylon, I think, should be understood as Babylon. We'll just take it literally unless John gives us some reason not to. Why? Well, number one, John uses places and names literally unless otherwise noted. And I just cited all the evidence there when he deals with the seven churches in Asia Minor. Okay, if John wants us to know that he's talking symbolically, he does so. That's what he did in Revelation 11.8. Remember, he talks about the great city. He talks about the fact that the two witnesses were there where the Lord was crucified. And he says spiritually it's called Sodom in Egypt, but it's not literal. So you and I know the distinction between literal and symbolic. Number two, the mention of the Euphrates tips us off to Babylon's literal existence. Now, where do we see that? Well, we see it in Revelation 16, 12. There's a lot of references to the Euphrates. Notice here, Revelation 16, 12, it says the sixth angel, so this is the sixth bowl judgment, poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and his water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, granted, seven verses later, you see the reference to Babylon, but nonetheless, it's in the same context. Babylon the great, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierce wrath. And so for those reasons, I think Babylon should be understood as literal Babylon. Now, the other thing I want to point out is Babylon the Great is also a reference to Daniel 4.30. And this explains why it is that John is using the term the great city. You see, Nebuchadnezzar called it the great. Remember back in Daniel 4.30, the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, notice the boasting. Nebuchadnezzar says it was by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty that he built Babylon. What should that remind us of? It reminds us of why the initial Tower of Babel was built. Remember in Genesis 11.4? The people were commanded to disperse, but I left out the T there, but it says, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make a name for ourselves, right? Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So notice the link between the boasting of Nebuchadnezzar in his day in the Tower of Babel. That's what's going to happen in Babylon. Babylon is the capital of rebellion against God, where people aren't concerned about making a name for Yahweh. They're concerned about making a name for themselves. I always think back to the beginning of President Obama's administration when he said, we were the ones we've been waiting for. Well, he wasn't speaking for me. I've never been waiting for myself. I'm not that excited to rule. And it isn't an interesting. If you look at the divide politically, it's those who want to self-impose limitations upon government and therefore power, the conservatives, versus those who always have an insatiable desire for more power. Why? Because they want to make a name for themselves. 
You know, there was one commentator, remember Obama was saying, when I come to power, the seas are going to recede. And he was making all these promises. That's frightening because in the book of Job, who alone treads down the waves of the sea? Yahweh does. And that's what's so significant when Jesus controls the sea, he's showing himself to be Yahweh. But Obama's promising control in the beginning of his administration over the sea. And one commentator, one conservative, I think he was a Republican, said, he's promising you the control of the sea. I just want to lower your taxes a little bit. All right, let's make our, our gains and our policies a little bit more modest than controlling the waves of the sea. Can't we just say, I want to make your life a little bit more tolerable? You see, the Antichrist and its kingdom is a messianic kingdom. That's what Babylon's about. Babylon is about bringing the rule of man to bear on all of the planet. And yet you and I say, no, the rule that we need isn't of man, it's of God. The city we worship is in Babylon. The city that we will one day worship Jesus Christ in is going to be the New Jerusalem. Yeah, Lonnie. This uh, great city of Babylon, uh, we don't see it yet, but is that going to be built during the tribulation or before? uh, It'd have to be built during the tribulation, right? Exactly right. I believe it will be. In fact, um, I'm going to cite some evidence. Alexander the Great, without tractors, without American hoist cranes and all of these things, he made harbors within Babylon very quickly. And these are guys, I don't know what they used, elephants or what, but they did a lot of things in just a few years. I think the same thing will occur in the 70th week of Daniel. So that uh, within the seven years... Yeah. It'll uh, become the hub of all... Spiritual okay. apostasy. Mm. Yep, I believe that could happen. In fact, that's one of my... Um, I'm sorry, go ahead, Brian. I'll get it to you. That was one of... The, I'll, I'll mention one of the concerns that I had about the Babylon view in a moment. Um, I don't want to get too far into what Lonnie said, but there, the fallen angels are going to be released during that time so it's not out of the realm that things like that could be built with the help of those types of uh benai elohim or those the sons of god the sons of god sure the benai elohim right. um, yeah you know i don't have any data to suggest that but um, again, I wouldn't put it past even human endeavor, knowing that... Um, let me just cite some examples. Here, here's, I'm going to just tie into what you're saying. One of my concerns was in Revelation 18, 17, you see sailors, once Babylon falls, you have sailors who are standing afar, and they wonder, oh, what's happened to our great city Babylon? Well, in my mind, Babylon in the middle of Iraq doesn't exactly smack of a maritime city. So I'm like, if this is a real Babylon built on the Euphrates... Where in the world is the harbor? Well, what's very interesting is when you go back in history, do you realize that Alexander the Great built a harbor there? In fact, listen to this. This is Arian's Anabasis. This is a second century history of Alexander the Great's campaigns. It's in a multi-volume set. And according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, we know that Alexander, quote, built a large harbor at Babylon as part of his preparation for conquering Arabia. Now listen to this. Arian wrote, quote, this is from the Anabasis, the chronicling Alexander the Great. It says, quote, Near Babylon, Alexander the Great constructed a harbor by excavation 
enough to afford anchorage for a thousand ships of war. And adjoining the harbor, he built dockyards. And then he goes on to mention some of the names of them. It says uh, there was 500 talents to enlist some men and purchase others who were experienced in nautical affairs. He made these preparations for the fleet to attack the main body of, of the Arabs, unquote. Now, what's very interesting also, let me quote another thing. New York Times, now I'm not a big newspaper guy, but it's very interesting. In March 22, 2010, the New York Times said that the greatest threat to the existing city of Babylon is the constant erosion because of all the salt water. It says this, quote, the most immediate threat to preserving the ruins of Babylon, the site of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, is water soaking the ground and undermining what is left of present-day Iraq. Well, when you piece it together, the reason why, it's built on the location of where the harbor was. And so as the Euphrates expands, it just keeps eroding. So the point is, Alexander the Great, without all of the modern-day mechanized material, was able to make a harbor that held a 1,000 ships. Now, these aren't the USS Nimitz. Right? I don't think, I'm not saying they were the, the Bismarck or something of that size, but nonetheless, they're trade vessels. And it certainly will be possible, and I think that will be built again. So that to me helps me understand that yes, this indeed literally could happen on the Euphrates, where we have a spiritual capital of the world who are into spirituality. There's an economic focus, a governmental focus, a one world focus, and it can be again once. Again, the capital of commerce for the unregenerate world. Yes, David. Uh, I was just wondering when uh, that bad guy, Saddam Hussein, was in power. Yeah. He talked about <laughs> rebuilding Babylon. Did he ever do anything like that? You know, um, you know it's funny. <laughs> I did a little research. I, I don't know how much he did. A lot of times people said he was more hurtful than he was helpful. Um, and the, the simple reason, David, he wanted to. But what he would do is he notoriously had low funds because they're always bankrupt. They'd fought the Iran-Iraq war. By the way, one of my favorite jokes is during the Iraq-Iran war, one famous American politician said it's a shame they both can't lose, right? <laughs> but, but Iraq was really bankrupt. So he had all these demands to build Babylon with never the money to do it. So if you were in charge of rebuilding Babylon and you didn't do so well because you had like $1.50 to work with, you're just, he would kill you. And so that's what he ended up doing to those who were in charge of building Babylon. And so it never, it's like Darth Vader does to his people that work for him. They just, if you don't do so well, you're, you're axed. And that's what happened. So it never went anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, we have, uh, we're almost out of time. Let me leave you with this. What's Babylon's fundamental character? The fundamental character of Babylon is it will be what it always has been. It is the headquarters of idolatry. And so what I want you to see, and this is what we'll leave on next time, or we'll start with next time, is I want you to see the references to both Jeremiah 51 and also Isaiah 21 that John is alluding to in Revelation 14.8. Here's Jeremiah 51, 6 through 7. Here's the command by Yahweh. He says to the people of Israel, flee from the midst of Babylon. Now stop there, why? Because Babylon was going to be judged in 539 B.C., the Medo-Persians under Cyrus destroyed Babylon. So the call was for the people to flee from that. They were to leave, okay, not to stay around. Now, notice here it says, flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment for this is Yahweh's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of Yahweh, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. 
What's very interesting is notice verse 7, Babylon has always been the nation that intoxicates the world. Why? Because it is regarded as the headquarters of all idolatry. All idolatry is a rejection of the true God. And Babylon has always stood as the headquarters of that. That's exactly what it's going to be in the last days. That is in the 70th week of Daniel. John says in Revelation 14, 8, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Dear brothers and sisters, Babylon stands as not only a real city in the 70th week of Daniel, but also as symbolic as a symbolic entity that represents the rebellion against God for all time. Just as there was rebellion in Babel where people wanted to make a name for themselves, Babylon built by Nebuchadnezzar made a name for him. In the book of Revelation, Babylon will be made a city not to give glory to God, but to usurp his authority. And dear ones, what you and I have to know is that it will be thrown down. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Um, I'll, I'll finish this next time, but one thing I want you to consider is which city are you living for? Are you living for Christ in the New Jerusalem? Or are you living for this world in Babylon? And I'll tell you what, as we go out the door, the way I tend to live for Babylon is by pre- being preoccupied with my problems, not trusting in the promises of God, and really questioning in my mind at times, is there really these promises or is this the best there is to come? And so when sin comes in my life, it's really me living for Babylon and saying this is the best that there is. But what we learn in the book of Revelation is this isn't the best. We aren't designed to make a name for ourselves, but we're going to make a name for God. When Jesus Christ returns, he's going to put down Babylon and all of his promises will indeed come true. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us clarity in Scripture that one day your Jerusalem will be exalted and lifted up as your King Jesus reigns in it and that Babylon will be thrown down. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters that they would remember these promises, that they would live for the King in his coming kingdom, even in the dark days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.